Hi, I'm Grace. And I'm Dalton. And thanks for listening. You can find us on Spotify, SoundCloud, iTunes, or wherever you get your podcasts. And don't forget to follow us on social media. We are at Fly on the Wall Pod on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. And if you have any questions or comments, feel free to email us at flyonthewallpodcast at gmail.com. Our guest this week is John Rogers, who was the executive director of the National Republican Congressional Committee during the 2018 election cycle. This semester, he is a fellow at Geopolitics. His discussion sessions meet on Wednesdays from 4 to 5.30 in the Geopolitics office. John, thank you so much for being on the podcast today. To start, tell us a little bit about your background and what inspired you to get into politics. Well, thanks for having me. This is, uh, this is going to be a lot of fun. And uh, let's get right into it here. So inspired me to get into politics. Uh, I started at a very young age. I was probably four or five. We had a friend in the family. We're, my family wasn't very political at all. Actually, wasn't political at all. We had a friend of the family run for office. My mother uh, went door to door with her, which meant that I went door to door with her and just had a blast. Uh, you know, my mother tells me a story about um, going to the victory party for that and how I was this like four or five year old kid just actively working room was just a hilarious <laughs> thing for her to witness. And I just fell in love with politics at a very young age and happened into it uh, after college. Yeah, so your first big political job was in New York Governor George Pataki's office. What were your responsibilities there and kind of what did it look like when you were there? Sure, I started out as an intern, which my responsibility was getting McDonald's better than anyone had ever gotten McDonald's for them. Uh, from there, I moved up. Uh, I started driving um, his political guy around. I was a special assistant, would do whatever odd jobs needed to be done without really asking any questions. And then I started getting shipped around on campaigns to go out and solve problems. Later, moved up and was what's called an appointments officer, which is the job that gives out jobs, which is a pretty cool thing to have when you're 22 years old. Just your job is to give out state government jobs. People is uh, was a lot of fun, made a lot of friends. And then I was in local government affairs there as well, where I would was solving even bigger problems as like a 23 or 24 year old kid, just solving real problems for cities in the state of New York was really cool. What was your favorite experience from kind of helping cities, you know, solve their problems as they call in the governor's office? Um, I had a mayor, it was a, a week before Christmas, I had a mayor of one of the larger cities in the state call up, call me as like a 24 year old kid and was like, John, um, I got a problem. The city is going bankrupt and I'm not going to be, we're not going to be able to make payroll for the paycheck before Christmas. Do you have a, can you guys help? And I was just like, yeah, piece of cake. We'll figure it out. And called the state budget office. They were able to accelerate the state aid payment that uh, the state makes to the city. And meanwhile, get a crew, uh, get a, like a budget a series of budget meetings together to fix the things that went wrong. The city never went bankrupt. And it was just a super cool experience when I was uh, really, really young. So after your time in the governor's office, you ran a few local campaigns in New York, which is pretty much what you've been doing since. What is your favorite part of being on the campaign trail? There's probably too many things to mention. I, I love, I love doing working for something that I believe in. I mean, I, I've, I've logged an incredible amount of hours over the course of my career and look back and feel like I haven't worked at all. And I think it is that just doing something that I actually believe in instead of just selling some you know product or something, something that I would do in my spare time for fun that I'm getting paid to do, 
was just an incredible experience for me. I, I loved being part of a team. I loved running a team. I loved learning. Uh, I systematically did pretty much every job on a campaign as I went through that process just to kind of learn and be a better campaign manager. And just, I, I had a great experience out there, worked really hard. So after that, you moved to work for the National Republican Congressional Committee. Uh, so during your time there, you moved from being a regional political director all the way up to executive director uh, for the most recent elections in 2018. How did your responsibilities change at each state of, stage of your NRCC career? Uh, Fairly dramatically, you started off at 14 state region and covered Kentucky up to Maine without Ohio, was sort of the day-to-day -day person interacting with campaigns and recruits in that region. Uh, the next cycle as a deputy PD where they, I, the, the sum title of my job description was, hey, can you figure out this data polling thing? Um, and then went out and created our data and polling department. Was not, I was involved with campaigns. I handled candidate recruitment, but was primarily focused on fixing our polling problems that cycle. Then was our political director, and then I started managing staff. Well, got back into managing staff, managing a big budget. Then ED, you're involved in it's it's executive director is is a is best described as a series of very hard pivots from one meeting to the next because you're dealing with every aspect of the of the campaign committee, and you will have to be fully up to speed and read in and ready to make a decision on wildly different topic areas, as opposed to when it's political director, it's all about the races, but when it's ED, it's fundraising, it's crisis communications, it's you know, uh, you know, different member issues, leadership dynamics, like you, research, you name it, and it's just a, it's a series of very hard pivots mm -hmm. and, a lot, and a lot of work. So if you could return to any role that you had during your years there, which one would it be and why? A deputy PD was the best job. I, I am, having really no having little direction and kind of limited job description isn't for everyone it's actually probably for fewer people rather mm -hmm. than more but i just loved it i loved not having a lot of rope um mm -hmm. and just going off and, and and doing what i wanted to do and i could like get myself in into or out of anything because there were people above me in the food chain and i didn't have to be the one to like deal with uh, a lot of the you know nonsense, but uh, was able to learn an incredible amount in that job. I loved it. So when you were deputy political director, uh, what cycle was that, and, and what was kind of the polling problem that you were trying to fix so much? So that was the 14 cycle. Um, so coming out of the Obama reelect versus Romney, we looked at our polling and, and we thought we were winning races that we stood no chance in. Um, one of the big problems was on the sampling side, they, a lot of pollsters were pulling based on registration and not necessarily based on any projections on what the electorate might look like or what the electorate has historically looked like. So, and by that, for folks that aren't really in the weeds on this, it, let's say I'm making up numbers, party registration in a seat is 50% Dem, or sorry, 60% Dem, 40% Republican. When you factor in turnout in a midterm, it might be closer to 50-50. So if you pull your sample, so if you're sampling based on a 60-40, the numbers aren't gonna come back reflecting what the likely electorate would look like. Um, they're also asking people whether or not they're going to vote, and we were able to scientifically uh, dispel the notion that that's an accurate indicator as to whether or not people will vote, because <laughs> people's vote history is actually the most likely thing, uh, indicators whether or not they're gonna vote. Hmm. So 
in politics, working for the same organization for eight years is actually a relatively long time. It's, what a, advice, it's a lifetime. Yeah. <laughs> it's a long time. What advice do you have for students who may be inclined to switch jobs more often? Um, it's, it's very common in D.C. I don't think anyone would begrudge anybody for doing that. I would just advise a little bit of caution in that if you're doing that, don't make a lot of lateral moves. If you can, in an interview, explain why you made those moves and have it make sense to the interviewer, then that's a good move. Um, because if you're interviewing people properly, and that was actually one of the great things about being ED. I, it, I completely changed my interview process. I changed my view on, on an organization because I had, a I think it was 116 employees. Mm -hmm. So you have to be really good at management when you're managing a staff of 116. And I moved into being um, interviewing a culture. And um, what I learned was, you, as you're going through somebody's resume, you, like ask them why they made the moves that they did. And so from somebody in college here that's about to be applying for a job, just expect that in an interview when you're looking at that. So if you're making moves, just make, make sure that it's a move that will make sense when you have to explain it in an interview someday. So as executive director, you had hundreds of campaigns going on all across the country. Some were probably more fun or more competitive than <laughs> others. How did you choose which ones actually needed your attention? Uh, a lot of times it's not the races that you want to pay attention to that you have to pay <laughs> attention to. The ones where everything is going well and the team is a lot of fun and uh, are usually the ones that you don't actually have to spend really any time other than maybe a check-in here and there. It's, it's much more of when there's some sort of problem that rises to the level of the ED, or I was in a unique position because I had been there so long. Uh, in some cases I had been there, somebody, like I was Andy Barr's RPD, uh, regional political director back in 2012. And so he and I are friends. And so obviously he's gonna call me when things are going on, even though his campaign was well run and he was doing a great job. So there were things like that, where it was just people that I had a good relationship with, but a lot of times it was, something was going wrong and you know and you know and I had to jump in there and try and help fix it. So for those most um, competitive seats, what were your primary methods for winning? TV is still king on voter communication. Uh, so our, well it wasn't directly me, but the, the IE running good TV ads, but from our interaction with campaigns, it's making sure they had a plan making sure that they had a budget and a plan and a good team around them that were serving them well, that you know people need to eat. I'm not saying people shouldn't get paid, but they weren't overcharging their clients and, the, and their candidates were getting what they were paying for, mm -hmm. fairly, on both sides. And making sure that they were on message and that you know they had all the things that they needed to do and everything that we could provide to them within the confines of the law. What do you feel was your greatest accomplishment at the NRCC? Surviving for eight years, I guess. Um, <laughs> meeting my wife is my greatest accomplishment at the NRCC. We met at the NRCC March, we met at an NRCC fundraiser. Um, so my single greatest accomplishment at the NRCC was meeting Sarah Rogers. Um, is probably uh, is probably the most honest answer about that. But I, I believe I was the point person behind more special election wins than any single person in the last hundred and probably 80 years in that place. We had the second largest majority in a generation, or the large majority in a generation, second largest majority in a very, very long time that we held for a period of time. 
uh, you know, we uh, we just move, advanced the Republican science of politics way beyond where it was from where we started. We, you know, our data department is was is and still is a bunch of rock stars over there. They just did a lot of great work, and and, and we really did fix our problem problems. I think I'm I'm guessing at the numbers, but an average poll in 2012, we missed the mark by like six point six and a quarter, something like that. And by the time we left last cycle, the average poll, I think we were off by like seven tenths of a point and wow. totally inside the margin of error. And you would not, and, and a poll is right. People have a, various opinions on whether our polls are right or wrong, but it's really for us, the measure is, does it cause you to make a bad decision? And I don't believe any bad decisions were made based on our polling there and something I'm really proud of. Hmm. On the flip side, what do you think was your kind of greatest mistake or missed opportunity that you wish you could take back? Oh boy. Um, I don't know that I, I, I'm not one to regret a bunch of things, even, you know, take things as learning experiences. I don't leave there as a bunch of regrets. Uh, there's not a single, there's not like one thing that I look at that that is worth mentioning in this interview that is like the thing that if I had a time machine, I would go back and, and, and redo. I think it, you know, you could question all day long and drive yourself insane about whether or not you would take the executive director job, having a really good idea what was going to happen in 2018. Mm -hmm. um, you know, you could ask yourself that all day long, but you'll drive yourself nuts if you're going to do that. So I don't really, you know, I'm looking forward. Hmm. So to move on to kind of our last section here, then the national political picture, to what extent did national politics impact the way you organized state and local campaigns all across the country? So we were just congressional. So, but... In 2016, everybody thought we were insane because we were going around town saying the house is fine. We looked very cool. People like were just like, um, so you realize, are you sure? And I'm like, look, I know you all. And I've said this in tons of pack briefings, tons of presentations. And I'm sure there's a host of people that can back me up. I'm like, I know everyone's going to think I'm crazy, but here's what's really going on. And we were looking at um, a question that we call the generic congressional ballot, which anybody with access to the internet can look up. And they track it on, uh, I think, 539 and real politics track it. it. It is, would you rather have a Republican or a Democrat representing you in Congress? And what we're seeing is whatever was going on with the presidential race was having no impact with the generic. Now, once we hit 18, that changed very dramatically. And so we were watching, we were watching very closely that and whether the independents looked more like Republicans or looked like Democrats out there. And so we saw that shift very early on and were, you know, our kind of mindset on it was let's put ourselves in a position to keep the majority if the conditions of, of victory are present. And if they're not, then let's give them the smallest majority that we could possibly give them. And so that was kind of uh, you know, a thought process going in is like, okay, if, if there is, if the generic, if generically we are in striking distance of this, we need to be able to capitalize on that. And meanwhile, if we're not, and it's this, this is a fixed point in time and a foregone conclusion, then let's just mitigate the damage as much as we can. Um, and so that was kind of our mindset as it related to things going on above us. We tried as hard as we could to, to localize these races, but mm -hmm. the electorate really wanted it to be national mm -hmm. and it was hard for a lot of these races to individualize themselves. Mm -hmm.
How often did you work with the White House, and what was the nature of your relationship with this administration? Uh, fairly frequently. We, we had a really good open dialogue with them, um, our, both me and folks, other folks on the team. Uh, so they have a similar RPD structures, kind of. Um, and so like our regional folks and their regional folks talk to each other. And, and I, I had a really good, really good relationship with them. Um, and a fairly open dialogue, I would, you know, as needed, there wasn't, we just talked as things were going on, which was fairly frequently. Um, and, you know, I would say it was a good working relationship. Hmm. Were there any particular strategies that you used with when to bring in the president and, and when not to and how to focus his abilities? Um, it's, I, I get a, that or a similar question every now and then. And I think the best way to describe that is his time was incredibly limited and i think that the press really wanted to write oh we're super picking and choosing we're saying it's like hey if you could send them to two places where would it be mm-hmm. and it, okay well here are the two places based on you know his performance and and who can capitalize on uh, a presidential visit because the other thing that vo- folks listening, almost none of the folks listening realize is how incredibly expensive it is for a campaign to have the president show up. Because if it's political travel, the and there's a fundraiser, the fundraising entity has to pay for that. They have to, piping and drape is unbelievably expensive. Like somebody here, start a pipe and drape company. Um, it's unbelievable how expensive it is. And a lot of campaigns just can't handle it. Um, they just can't, they're not, ra- they, they weren't able to, cover that expense and they have to lay a lot of that up front Mm -hmm. to pay for travel for you know secret service and whatnot Mm -hmm. and so most of them were just like sorry but you know they we had to make a call like they it would be great but they couldn't handle it so rather than kind of choosing you know where you didn't want the president wanted him it was just like wherever you know he had such little time you just put him wherever you kind of could where it'd be the most impactful because he only had a couple visits yeah i mean it it wasn't it wasn't like hey we're gonna you know make 200 stuff we want to (laughs) visit all 200 and, you know, when it was a 230 <laughs> congressional districts, it wasn't like that at all. It's like, hey, if you had five, what five would it be? Yeah. And it, again, you, you have to pick people that can carry the freight of that, too, yeah. on the expense side. Okay, so you've worked with almost every Republican representative, uh, and you've gotten to know some of the personalities in the 116th Congress. Instead of our normal lightning round here, we'd like to ask you about some uh, GOP congressional superlatives. Great. So the first one we have is class clown. So I want to first start by apologizing to any members that are going to call and yell at me if they listen to this. Um, I think the funniest human being that I've met in the last probably eight years of my life is Denver Ringelman. Um, he is hilarious. The, he's just hilarious. Um, and second is probably Bill Heisinger. So who would be the star athlete of this class? Anthony Gonzalez. That's an easy one. Because he is literally a star athlete. So <laughs> thanks for making that one easy for me. Who would you say is the hardest working member? Virginia Fox. Uh, I, and I think most members would agree. She, uh, she, raise, uh, she raises money. But, I mean, she is just unbelievably hardworking. I have a lot of respect for her. Who's the most misunderstood? Another very easy one um, is Greg Gianforte. Uh, for folks who weren't paying attention or really weren't involved in politics at all before then, he was the one that body slammed that reporter. Great guy, seriously. He is a, if you get a chance, if you're listening to this and you have a chance to spend some time with Greg Forte, no, he will not body slam you. He's a great guy. 
He was incredibly helpful. Um, what I think he's the wealthiest member of Congress and was very helpful to us. So we had um, him speak to our division directors just about management and culture and is is just an awesome dude. Which two members of the Republican con- Congress would you say are the best friends? I think probably Greg Walden and Fred Upton are maybe the closest. The energy and commerce guys. Energy and C guys, yeah. Big, uh, the dynamic duo of uh, the two of them. <laughs> Both, both also great guys. Um, and who's the loudest? I think with Jeff Denham no longer be, from California no longer being a member, uh, everyone else is quiet uh, now that he's gone. Um, he was the loudest, uh, and he'll probably hold that title for the next few Congresses. So this one's a little more serious than the usual superlative. So you can say a couple if you want. But who do you think is most likely to be president of this class? Oh, boy. Um, President of the United States of America? Uh, Liz Cheney has got to be on that list. Um, Elise, probably a lot of folks would put on their list as well. Um, It would be awesome if Denver Riggleman was president because it would be the most hilarious presidency in, in, in history. Um, yeah, those are probably those are probably a couple of them. All right, well, that's all we have for you, John. Thanks for oh, joining us today. Great, thank you. Thank you. Thanks for joining us this week. Before you go, don't forget to follow us on social media. We are at Fly on the Wall Pod on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. If you enjoyed this podcast or have any questions, email us at flyonthewallpodcast at gmail.com. And don't forget to go to John's discussion sessions on Wednesdays from 4 to 5.30 in the GU Politics office. See you next week.